This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight's show is about changing the narrative. I've invited David Spratt in to talk to us about Bill McKibben's new report, Mobilising Us to be on a third world war footing. Now this sounds very scary and I've got an actor, Robin Laurie, to read you Bill McKibben's article in an edited version in the second part of this program. But the idea is no social movement really achieves anything until it changes the narrative. And the narrative we've got now puts us on a go slow. We have a narrative that says we can fix everything with technology, that it's all going to change anyway through market forces and it's just inevitable and incremental and it's going, you know, we just have to keep working at it. There's another narrative that says, yes, we'll sign up to Paris Climate Conference, we'll know about climate change, but we can't do it yet. We can't have blackouts. We can't risk our whole economy by closing down and disrupting the coal and gas industry. And so those people are on a go slow, and I think secretly they're really hoping that nuclear power will save us or geoengineering solutions will come, come up trumps. These narratives are not leading us to the kind of changes we need. And David Spratt starts by telling us why. I've invited David Spratt in to talk about finding the narrative which will mobilise people. His booklet, Climate Reality Check, has a foreword by Ian Dunlop, who's a hero because he moved from being the CEO of the Australian Coal Association to being nowadays one of its most educated critics. So how are you, David? Good. Hi, Viv. Um, Look, Ian Dunlop said we have left it too late to solve the climate dilemma with a gradual response. I think he said a graduated response. Emergency action akin to placing economics on a war footing remains essential. Well, I think we are getting a graduated response from our leaders at the moment, painfully slow. Where do you see the new leadership? Well, the whole policy-making process, both internationally and in Australia, is based on gradualism. Uh, We just do it step by step. The overwhelming concern of international policy-making, and this has come through in the reports by Stern and Garner and many others, is whatever we do, it must not interrupt the economy. This is this is primary. It, uh, Kevin Anderson, a, a great climate science professor from the UK, says it's the triumph of economics over physics, and that's our problem. Because whether it be the agreement in Paris or uh, what happens at the national level, people are saying, "Oh, look, maybe we should do this, but that would be too disruptive. So let's do B instead of A," and that's why we now face an emergency because we've had this gradualist response where the gap between what needs to be done and what is being done is getting larger and larger. So that um, paradigm is dying and we need a a different approach. Well, later we're going to hear a dramatisation of Bill McKibben's latest article where he calls for a mobilisation. He taps into an American desire to lead the world, I think, and I found it alarming to think of them waging a war on climate after the war on drugs and the war on terror, uh, which have made things a lot worse, Mm. in my opinion. But do you think this idea of heroic wartime leadership is the best we can do? Well, I don't think his rhetoric would work so well in Australia. I mean, 
the Second World War and what did it have a particular resonance in, in America, partly because of Pearl Harbor, partly because America has always seen itself as a leader and defender of the free world, mm. and so the war was them saving the world from, mm-hmm. from, from fascism. Also, probably subconsciously, because the Second World War provided a huge industrial platform for American capital to to, to, to dominate the world for for the half century after that. So it has a different resonance in America than here. So you would have to, I think, talk about things differently here. But, I mean, what's useful about McKibben's piece is he's puncturing the idea of gradualism. He really attacks it. And he, you know, he goes back to the Second World War um, analogy of appeasement uh, versus taking on Hitler. And he says, people who are coming out of Paris saying, this is all right, this is all fine. He says, they're engaged in a, in, a, in a process of climate appeasement, which is really strong and I think a useful conversation to have. I think at bottom line, we've got two models. One is the model we've had with international policy making is leave it to the market, prices are efficient, carbon taxes are efficient, we can have all this change, we'll all be happy, clappy, more jobs, more clean mm. energy. Um, more and health. Then, more, everything's beautiful, it's win-win. <laughs> now, I mean, uh, Paul Gilding, the former uh, head of Greenpeace, wrote a book called The Great Disruption, saying this is an illusion. And we know it's an illusion because what we have to do, we have to now do so fast and so quick that it is disruptive. I mean, the coal industry and parts of the fossil fuel industry are now now in the middle of a process of creative destruction, partly by the market and partly because they're losing their social licence. But we now have to do things so fast that it requires the decisive uh, and inspirational leadership, which has to come from the people through their government, and that's why he goes back to the war economy because in the Second World War they called in companies and said, you're not producing another car till the war's over. You people are going to have to have rationing because we need all the rubber to make <laughs> tyres for, for, for trucks and things for tanks. You, you know, your level of, of um, consumption has to be repressed a bit so we can invest in the war. So it's a funny analogy, but it works because we now need to act really, really quickly. The market cannot respond quickly enough. You cannot put a price on carbon high enough to stop people polluting because a large carbon tax will, will, is a different incentive to poor people, but rich people are going to keep on flying around the world and having their yachts and mm. buying new BMWs. Mm. So in essence, he's, uh, he's drawn out an argument that's, that's really important to have about what is necessary to win. Right. Well, as long as we don't have to follow the American lead... No, I, I think we could use different words here. Um, for I mean, an Australian we, audience, what do you Australian think or- this emergency means? Uh, well, I think we have some resonance with emergency. People um, know whether it's a fire or a flood or, or a storm or, or a cyclone that an emergency response means, one... You actually have bipartisan support. You don't have Labor and Liberal bickering about whether you should fight the fire or not. You deploy resources in advance. You don't have an argument about how much money you should spend on it. You say, we're going to spend the money to solve this problem. Everybody in and you go for it. And that's what we need with climate now. We can't we can't bicker about how many resources we need because the 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 laws of physics and chemistry won't stop. They won't negotiate. They will roll over us unless we change the physical reality. So I think emergency part works. Um, in America, um, there's a thing being set up two or three years ago, which a, a small group of people to start with called the climate mobilisation, and they talked about the Second World War analogy as a great mobilisation. And I think in Bill McKibben's article as well, if we think about this as a huge industrial mobilisation, to build the factories, to build the things that allow us to make this really large energy switch and consumption switch. So, I mean, industrial mobilisation maybe is a sort of language that would um, the labour movement and unions would, would understand. I think ordinary people would understand it. They're very concerned about deindustrialisation in Australia. So we probably have to search for the language, but the idea is clear. Well, I think actually a big idea is easier to deal with than incrementally lots of little small ideas. Everyone says, oh, there's so much going on. And I I read 
report on that. I interview all those little things that are going on all around the country. But I just recently read a book by E.O. Wilson called Half Earth, mm. where he wants for biodiversity half the earth to be dedicated, which means Borneo, the Serengeti Park, you know, like all these places and corridors between them. And he, being a famous, you know, biologist, he... Absolutely. Sees it as necessary and the benefits of and, it. And the urgency of it. He's, That's right. you know, he he's, said a big idea is easier to deal with than um, just piecemeal. Absolutely. It's easier to say no war than saying, oh, yes, well, maybe war will be all right if the yeah. UN says yes and so on. And, and, and now the problem is so urgent that we need a big, clear narrative. A whole lot of little things don't add up to a big thing. Right. Well, look, Nobel laureate uh, for medicine Peter Doherty was one of many people who signed on civil society leaders recently in the age. They signed on to an emerg- um, calling for mm. emergency scale um, action and it was published in the age. And I thought, well, this idea is gaining momentum because I know you and Philip Sutton's book, uh, Climate Code Red, you, you had this idea of an emergency action, emergency scale. All Eight, nine years, years ago. ago. Yes, all those years ago. I remember I was at one of the book launches for that and, and it seemed like, oh, very exciting. But it's taken all this idea to filter through. It's still not mainstream, I don't think. But anyway, these responsible social leaders have started to call for this. Mm. But what's stopping a more um, vigorous ideas leadership? Where, like the Ble- Where's the Bletchley Park for mm. this war? Um, look, maybe every idea has its time <laughs> and maybe the time has come. When you when you look back, I mean, Al Gore and his film, I think, talked about climate emergency. Yeah. We had Ban Ki-moon go to the Antarctic once and it was so shocked. He said, this is a climate emergency. So the language has been used, but people perhaps just thought it was rhetoric mm. rather than having a concrete meaning in terms of, of what you have to do. And now times have changed. And that advertisement in, in, in the age um, is one expression of that. I, th- I think that a large number of people involved in policy making realise that the old game is now up and they're desperate. Then we've had the El Nino uh, last year and this year record heat. We you know, we had Paris saying we shouldn't get past one and a half degrees. February this year was one point six degrees. A quarter of the barrier reef died. Um, the mangroves were lost. I mean we 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 saw the six mass extinction mm. just unfurl before our eyes. And that really shocked people. So scientists like Stefan Ramsdorf from the Potsdam Institute came out and said in February, this is a climate emergency. And this time it caught and a whole lot of other scientists said yes as well and, and this time it stuck. Mm. Uh, be, perhaps because the, the the time was right, so I think that's been important. If we look at McKibben's um, essay, I think there are a couple of other things that happened. The climate mobilisation in America started off three years ago with a small group of, of people who read Climate Code Red thought about it, and they said we need to mobilise like the Second World War. People can um, uh, Google climate mobilisation; they'll mm-hmm. see their messages. They're very strong. They're 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 mm-hmm. great. And one of the ideas I had was. Um, in the presidential election, in the primaries, was to talk to Bernie Sanders and try and get him up the, up the line on this. And miraculously, they they did. And he started to say, "Yes, it's an emergency. The climate's the big issue." Um, then, as the process went on, and it got towards a Democratic Party uh, convention, they have a platform committee which writes out the policy. And the Sanders people um, got some delegates on that committee, and Bill McKibben was one of the delegates and the um, the Clinton people kept on whacking through terrible policy, you know, pro-fracking and they got really frustrated. Bill McKibben talks about it in his article about how frustrated he was and it looked like there might be a bit of a big falling out and they came back to the next meeting two weeks later and they had this proposal which had come from the climate mobilisation people through a, a, a DNC operative called Russell Green saying this is a climate emergency and we need an emergency mobilisation in the first hundred days of the, of the new presidency. The president will convene the heads of industry and blow on to do it. And miraculously, perhaps because it was a bit general in terms, this stayed in the platform, Mm -hmm. saying this is a climate emergency, we need a national mobilisation like the war. Incredible. And it stuck, and it got through the convention, and now I think people are thinking that, well, we hope that Clinton will win, if if only because it's not the other guy, and that they have this platform and they have an opportunity with Clinton in to say, okay, this is in the platform. Your people voted for it. Let's do it. Yeah. And that's where Bill McKibben's essay comes in because 350 and obviously wider forces in the Democratic Party are now saying, let's make this happen. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show on Monday night. That's on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. What we just heard was the first part of Vivian's interview with David Spratt, and when we return we'll hear the second part where he's talking about his article, Climate Reality Check, and how we need to mobilise against climate change as if for a world war. We're back with David Spratt here, the author of Climate Code Red, and a, a great intellectual in our society, about in our climate action society, and He's written a book called Climate Reality Check, and I'd like, David, now could you please summarise the main plan of action that you see that's part of this emergency mobilisation? Well, this was prompted by what happened after Paris, and a lot of people coming back and happy clapping about how great Paris was. So I thought I'd need to set the scientific record straight to, 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 to start with, uh, which is what the first part of the document does. Also, I'll look at the Barrier Reef and what it really means and what saving the reef means, which is different from what the NGOs say because it's obvious that one degree of warming, which, which we have now, the reef will die. So we have to do a lot more than people think we need to do. So what's safe? I mean, it's now clear that we are, are outside the conditions of, of the Holocene of the last 10,000 years of human civilization. We're now moving into a different regime. If we stay there, we will be in the sixth mass extinction. The, 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 the poles will melt. We have to go back to where we've come from, and that requires three things. Zero emissions really fast. We've already talked about what that means in terms of mobilisation. Secondly, we effectively have one and a half degrees of warming in the system now. Even if we stopped emissions tomorrow, we get to one and a half degrees, and that was the Paris um, goal, not a great one. So if one and a half degrees, every tonne we put up from now on, we have to get back down, even for one and a half degrees. That means that carbon drawdown is really important. Obviously, the quicker we can get to zero emissions, the less we're going to have to draw back down. Mm. But now, even the, the Paris talks talked about carbon drawdown. The, the technology around it is not developed enough yet, but I think it probably can be done. The third thing is that that still leaves at one and a half degrees. And at one and a half degrees, the Barrier Reef will die. The Arctic will have no sea ice. West Antarctic's already passed its tipping point for several metres of sea level rise. We know that one metre of sea level rise will flood... 40% of the Mekong Delta. It will flood 25% of the Nile Delta. It will take away 18 to 20% of the Bangladesh land area. Two metres of sea level rise at less than one degree will bring an end to civilization in many parts of the world. So the other thing we have to think about is are there ways that we can cool our way out of this danger zone? Now, this is very contentious because it's about using sulphates to replace the sulphates which are now tipped up there by uh, burning fossil fuels. So we burn fossil fuels. A byproduct is a whole lot of sulphates which have a temporary cooling effect. Okay, so take this slowly because this is new for the listeners. Yeah. So when we burn, there, there are things called aerosols. Um, they include dust in the air from storms. But the main source of aerosols are sulphate particles which are a byproduct of burning fossil fuels. And those sulphates, which only last a week in the atmosphere, having a cooling effect of at least half a degree, between half a degree and one degree. So if we stop burning fossil fuels tomorrow, we get an immediate kick up of half a degree in, in warming, simply because we've lost those, that sulphate cooling. So the question is, can we replace them with something else till we can get the system back down? Now, this is contentious. Some people hate it. It's not a developed technology. Um, my view is that we have to see if we can make it work, because if we can make it work, we can have the Barrier Reef. If we can't make it work, we won't have the Barrier Reef and a, whole, and a whole lot of other species. Who is working on this? Look, various people are. There's a really eminent scientist called Ken Caldera, um, who, in fact, wrote one of the two introductions to Climate Code Red 10 years ago, who I think is a really honourable guy, um, a very brilliant man, who looked at acidification in the oceans and helped to develop our, our understanding of what's happened in past history. Um, um, the, there's a range of people. He, he did a, a really good survey. I think it's called The Science of Geoengineering. He and another uh, author called Cow, C-A-O. And it's an overview 50, 60 pages of what's happened and where the technology is. It says 
this we don't know, this doesn't work, this might work. So it's, I think that's, that, that's a good introduction. So, you know, we are now in a, in a world of least worst, worst options. We don't have any perfect paths forward. Uh, going to zero emissions is not enough. We, we, have to, we, have to, and we have to struggle with it with a very complex problem, and that's why we say it's an emergency. That's why we need government and the people to lead, not lead it to the market and banks who think about three-year profits, not the future of species. What about leaving it to reforestation and more grasslands and that sort of... Well, I mean, that's obviously part of that's that's a necessary part of carbon drawdown. We know that deforestation can can start to bring that that car that um, uh, level of carbon dioxide down. But we have to do a lot of this really quickly. I mean, we have taken the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from two eighty to four hundred parts per million. At it's now two parts per million a year. That's ten billion tons of carbon we put up there each year. So, to take that four hundred back to two eighty. To take it back two parts per million requires us to draw down 10 billion tonnes of carbon every year. So this is not a trivial issue. It's not a few trees. This is, you know, we're going to acquire a large global natural industrial whatever can work to get us out of this incredible hole we've we've, um, uh, dug ourselves into. And the question is, where is the leadership Mm. in Australia to articulate and, 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 and do this. And, and um, you know, the question I kept on asking, why do we keep on failing to do what is obviously in our best interest? Um, there are very few public figures in Australia who will even talk about this. You, you mm. talked about Ian Dunlop either. How many Ian Dunlops are there in Australia? Mm. One, mm. two, three? Um, and yet at the fa- same time we find that the population seems to get this, maybe not intellectually in a, in a rigorous, logical way, but in an emotional, existential way. We know that people know that bad times are coming. I mean, if we if we look at the research, and there were some done uh, last year when a couple of very eminent Australian researchers, um, Melanie Randall and Richard Eckersley, looked in four countries, the US, the UK, Canada and Australia, and they asked people, how do you think about the future? And they found that half of them thought our way of life would end um, in the next 100 years. Now, what way of life means? But obviously, they don't think things are going to go on as they are. And a quarter of them thought that human civili- humans might be wiped out in the next 100 years. And there's a whole lot more data where people are, are quite bleak. Mm. about the future and they know the system can't go on. They know we're using more natural resources than we can each year that that we're going to hit the wall. And, um, you know, they agreed with propositions like the world's future looks grim so we have to focus on looking after ourselves and those we love or we need to lead. Different different responses. Um, And the question that sort of came to me reading this research is that the irony is that People have a pretty fair intuitive sense of what might be coming, but our our leaders, our political leaders, mm. our ideas leaders can't even talk about it. Mm. And that's the great the great irony in all of this. Okay. Well look, just to finish, David, um give the the re- the listeners some a bit of a reading list. Like who are the thought leaders worldwide? Who do you read? You've you've mentioned Anderson, you've mentioned uh, look, um, Kevin, Aldera, Kevin Anderson, uh, Professor Kevin Anderson in the UK has a website. Have a look at his videos or his presentations. He did one um, I think at LSE in January this year. There'll be a PowerPoint you can see as you watch him do it. He is stunningly good. I still think that um, Paul Gilding's book The Great Disruption is really takes on some of these issues about leave to the market or or, or let's lead. Um, I think in terms of a daily thing, uh, Joe Rom's blog, um, Climate Progress, just look yep. up Climate Progress and subscribe to that. You get a little email each yes. day. He covers energy issues and science, um, and from that you'll pick up some other material, uh, people like Climate Central. Um, in terms of scientists... Um, if you're on social media, follow uh, Professor Michael E. Mann. He was the guy who um, produced the hockey stick, oh, yeah. saying that the temperature was kicking, kicking up. Um, all the deniers assailed him. He's beaten them, uh, beaten hands in a series of legal cases. Mm-hmm. He's a really good combative guy, and uh, we quote him in Climate Reality Check, a very non-reticent scientist. So 
There's what, a few. What about easier ones to read, like journalists? Um, well, I mean, in, in Australia, I mean, the people who write well on this are obviously Peter Hannum in Fairfax, so long as Fairfax exists. Mm. Uh, and after that, uh, in The Guardian, they give it more priority than anybody else does. Yeah. Graham Redfern, the Australian researcher who, who looks at a lot at denial, denies yeah. and so on, um, writes well. Yes. All right. Well, thank you very much. I think um, Paul Gilding, at the beginning of his book, he said, um, he quoted Mahatma Gandhi, who said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. Well, maybe we're getting to the win stage on climate emergency. I think we're on the fight stage. (laughs) You know, the war. Yes, we're not being ignored anymore. We're not going to win. We're not going to win unless we do fight it, but we have to fight it intelligently. And that's why I think we need to have this discussion. I I do agree with you that this very thin leadership in thought, I find very few people I can really talk to about this because they glaze over. They're not doing the reading. Reading, They are lulled into Mm. a kind of complacency and it makes you feel... Oh, this is a bit lonely. Why is it just a few people? I think the Bill McKibben essay may help to get a few more yes. people engaged in yes. what I mean. This is a process of normalising radical ideas because radical ideas are now necessary to 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 save us from yes. a, a climate catastrophe. And the process of normalising might pick up really quickly. That's my feeling because we've come a long way in the last six months. All right. Thank you very much, David. So that was author David Spratt, who we've spoken to many times over the years. And I think now we're coming to a, a bit of a climax. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Mobilising against climate change requires a leap of the imagination So I asked Melbourne actor Robin Laurie to come into 3CR to dramatise Bill McKibben's article. It's called A World at War, and it was published in September issue of New Republic. I've also channelled some of the fireside chats from US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to remind us what it's like to ramp up our efforts. His wife, Eleanor, toured the country, meeting people in factories and army bases, in hospitals and on the land. She was the eyes and ears for the polio-stricken president, and his radio talks, as well as her columns and regular radio shows, are infused with sympathy for the difficulties people faced. One woman worker, for example, told Mrs Roosevelt that her four children were sleeping in her car every night outside the factory window as she did the night shift churning out ships for the Navy. Soon, daycare, centres, even take-home meals became common in factories. I wondered what would the Roosevelts do with the climate challenge we face? Well, they had mobilised America in the Depression when the worst man-made ecological disaster in US history created a dust bowl. They rolled out relief programs and went to the root of the problem, planting 220 million trees and 18,000 miles of windbreaks to conserve the soil. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't leave coal communities on the scrap heap. They wouldn't leave elderly citizens to expire in heat waves because they couldn't afford to turn on the fan. They wouldn't leave country people to fight off every coal seam gas and coal export company taken to court as if it's a crime to defend the food bowl and the aquifer. They wouldn't leave renewable energy companies to compete with the already subsidised fossil fuel industry or to haggle over carbon mechanisms. But leaders have mobilised citizens before in self-defence and they have been pushed by citizens to take leadership. Climate change is urging us to get these sort of leaders. The Roosevelts are a good model, explaining and bringing people along. They confronted racism and denialism, even fascism. But the mobilisation was transformative. Now we'll hear Robin Laurie reading Bill McKibben's article... A world at war. Under attack from climate change, and our only hope is to mobilise like we did in World War II. In the north this summer, a devastating offensive is underway. Enemy forces have seized huge swathes of territory. With each passing week, another 22,000 square miles of Arctic ice disappears. 
experts dispatched to the battlefield in July saw little cause for hope, especially since this siege is one of the oldest fronts in the war. In 30 years, the area has shrunk approximately by half, said a scientist who examined the onslaught. There doesn't seem to be anything able to stop this. In the Pacific this spring, the enemy staged a daring breakout across thousands of miles of ocean, waging a full-scale assault on the region's coral reefs. In a matter of months, long stretches of formations like the Great Barrier Reef, dating back past the start of human civilization and visible from space, were reduced to white bone yards. Day after day, week after week, saboteurs behind our lines are unleashing a series of brilliant and overwhelming attacks. In the past few months alone, our foes have used a firestorm to force the total evacuation of a city of 90,000 people in Canada, drought to ravage crops to the point where, a, where southern Africans are literally eating their seed corn, and floods to threaten the priceless repository of art in the Louvre. The enemy is even deploying biological weapons to spread psychological terror. The Zika virus, loaded like, in, like a bomb into a growing army of mosquitoes, has shrunk the heads of newborn babies across an entire continent. Panicked health ministers in seven countries are now urging women not to get pregnant. And, as in all conflicts, millions of refugees are fleeing the horrors of war, the numbers swelling daily as they're forced to abandon their homes to escape famine and desolation and disease. World War Three is well and truly underway, and we are losing. For years, our leaders chose to ignore the warnings of our best scientists and top military strategists. Global warming, they told us, was beginning a stealth campaign that would lay waste to vast stretches of the planet, uprooting and killing millions of innocent civilians. But instead of paying heed and taking obvious precautions, we chose to strengthen the enemy with our endless combustion, a million explosions of a billion pistons inside a billion cylinders have fueled a global threat as lethal as the mushroom-shaped nuclear explosions we long feared. Carbon and methane now represent the deadliest enemy of all time. The first force, fully capable of harrying, scattering and impoverishing our entire civilization. We're used to war as a metaphor... The war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on cancer. Usually, this is just a rhetorical device, a way of saying, we need to focus our attention and marshal our forces to fix something we don't like. But this is no metaphor. By most of the ways we measure wars, climate change is the real deal. Carbon and methane are seizing physical territory, sowing havoc and panic, racking up casualties and even destabilising governments. Over the past few years, record-setting droughts have helped undermine the brutal strongman of Syria and fuel the rise of Boko Haram in Nigeria. It's not that global warming is like a world war. It is a world war. Its first victims, ironically, are those who have done the least to cause the crisis. But it's a world war aimed at us all. The question is not, are we in a world war? The question is, will we fight back? And if we do, can we actually defeat an enemy as powerful and inexorable as the laws of physics? To answer these questions, to assess honestly and objectively, our odds of victory in this new world war. We must look to the last one. My fellow Americans, 
As you know, I have recently come back from a trip of inspection of camps and training stations and war factories. In some communities, employers dislike to employ women. In others, they are reluctant to hire Negroes. In still others, older men are not wanted. We can no longer afford to indulge such prejudices or practices. For four years, the United States was focused on a single all-consuming goal to the exclusion of any other concern, defeating the global threat posed by Germany, Italy and Japan. Unlike Adolf Hitler, the last force to pose a planet-wide threat to civilization, our enemy today is neither sentient nor evil. But before the outbreak of World War II, the world's leaders committed precisely the same mistake we are making today. They tried first to ignore their foe and then to appease him. Carbon and methane, by contrast, offer not contempt but complete indifference. They couldn't care less about our insatiable desires as consumers or the sunk cost of our fossil fuel infrastructure or the geostrategic location of the petrostates or any of the host of excuses that have so far constrained our response to global warming. The world came back from signing the Climate Accord in Paris last December, exactly as Chamberlain returned from Munich. Hopeful, even exhilarated, that a major threat had finally been tackled. It may be too late already to meet that stated target. As each new edition of Science or Nature makes clear, climate change is mounting an all-out blitzkrieg, setting new record highs for global temperatures in each of the past 14 months. Not long after Paris, Earth scientists announced that the West Antarctic ice sheet is nowhere near as stable as we had hoped. If we keep pouring greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, it will shed ice much faster than previous research had predicted. The Antarctic research did contain, as the Times reported, one morsel of good news. Yes, following the Paris Accord would doom much of the Antarctic, but a far more stringent effort to limit emissions of greenhouse gases would stand a fairly good chance of saving West Antarctica from collapse. What would that far more stringent effort require? For years now, climate scientists and leading economists have called for treating climate change with the same resolve we brought to bear on Germany and Japan in the last world war. But what would that actually look like? What would it mean to mobilise for World War III on the same scale as we did for the last World War? As it happens, American scientists have been engaged in a quiet but concentrated effort to figure out how quickly existing technology can be deployed to defeat global warming. A modest start, in effect, for a mighty Manhattan project. Mark Z. Jacobson, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University and the director of its Atmosphere and Energy program, has been working for years with a team of experts to calculate precisely how each of the 50 states in the USA could power itself from renewable resources. In the past year, the Stanford team has offered similar plans for 139 nations around the world. The research delves deep into the specifics of converting to clean energy. But would the Stanford plan be enough to slow global warming? Yes, says Jacobson. If we move quickly enough to meet the goal of 80% clean power by 2030, then the world's carbon dioxide levels would fall below the relative safety of 350 parts per million by the end of the century. The planet would stop heating up, or at least the pace of that heating would slow substantially. That's as close to winning this war as we could plausibly get. 
we'd endure lots of damage in the meantime, but not the civilization-scale destruction we currently face. Even if all the world's nations meet the pledges they made in the Paris Accord, carbon dioxide is currently on a path to hit 500 or 600 parts per million by century's end. A path, if not to hell, then to some place with a similar setting on the thermostat. My fellow Americans, as you know, I have recently come back from a trip of inspection of camps and training stations and war factories. And in another community of fruit growers, the usual Japanese labor was not available. But when the fruit ripened, the banker, the butcher, the lawyer, the garage man, the druggist, the local editor, and in fact every able-bodied man and woman in town left their occupations, went out, gathered the fruit, and sent it to market. According to the conventional view of World War II, American business made all this happen simply because it rolled up its sleeves and went to war. As is so often the case, however, the conventional view is mostly wrong. Yes, there are endless newsreels from the era of patriotic businessmen unrolling blueprints and switching on assembly lines, but that's largely because those businessmen paid for the films. Their PR departments also put out their own radio serials with titles like Victory is Their Business and War of Enterprise, and published endless newspaper ads boasting of their own patriotism. In reality, many of America's captains of industry didn't want much to do with the war until they were dragooned into it. Henry Ford, who built and managed that Ypsilanti bomber plant, was an America firster who urged his countrymen to stay out of the war. The Chamber of Commerce, now a leading opponent of climate action, fought to block Roosevelt's Lend-Lease program to help the imperiled British. American businessmen oppose American involvement in any foreign war, the the Chamber's president explained to Congress. Luckily, Roosevelt had a firm enough grip on Congress to overcome the Chamber of Commerce, and he took the lead in gearing up America for the battles to come. Mark Wilson, a historian at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, has just finished a decade-long study of the mobilisation effort, entitled Destructive Creation. It was public capital that built most of the stuff, not Wall Street, says Wilson, And at the top level of logistics and supply chain management, the military was the boss. They placed the contracts, they moved the stuff around. The feds acted aggressively. They would cancel contracts as war needs changed, tossing factories full of people abruptly out of work. If firms refused to take direction, Roosevelt ordered many of them seized. Though companies made money, there was little in the way of profiteering. Bad memories from World War I, Wilson said, led to robust profit controls, which were mostly accepted by America's industrial tycoons. Usually, when people from different worlds are dealing with each other, they get into conflicts and then dig in their heels deeper, Burke says. But because the stakes are so high and it's moving so fast, no one doubts that if you don't get a handle on this battle in the Atlantic, then the immediate consequences will be really grave. So they're willing to do this kind of pragmatic trial and error. They start to see that I can't dig in my heels. I need this other person to learn from. In the face of a common enemy, Americans work together in a way they never had before. We are united in seeking the kind of victory that will guarantee that our grandchildren can grow and under God may live their lives free from the constant threat of invasion, destruction, slavery, and violent death. It's time to get ready. Political will is starting to build, 
just as it began to gather in the years before Pearl Harbour. A widespread movement has killed off the Keystone Pipeline, stymied Arctic drilling and banned fracking in key states and countries. As one oil industry official lamented in July, the Keep It In The Ground campaign has controlled the conversation. This resembles, at least a little, the way Roosevelt actually started gearing up for what was 18 months before the date which will live in infamy. The ships and planes that won the Battle of the Midway six months into 1942 had all been built before the Japanese attacked Hawaii. By the time of Pearl Harbour, Wilson says, the government had pretty much solved the problem of organisation. After that, they just said, we're going to have to make twice as much. Pearl Harbour did make individual Americans willing to do hard things, pay more in taxes, buy billions upon billions in war bonds, endure the shortages and disruptions that came when the country's entire economy converted to wartime production. Use of public transit went up 87% during the war, as Naomi Klein points out in This Changes Everything. 40% of the nation's vegetables were grown in victory gardens. For the first time, women and minorities were able to get good factory jobs. Rosie the Riveter changed our sense of what was possible. Without a Pearl Harbour, in fact, there was only so much even Roosevelt could have accomplished. So far, there has been no equivalent in the climate war, no single moment that galvanises the world to realise that nothing short of total war will save civilization. Perhaps the closest we've come to Roosevelt's date of infamy speech, and it wasn't all that close, was when Bernie Sanders, in the first debate, was asked to name the biggest security threat facing the planet. Climate change, he replied, prompting all the usual suspects to tut-tut that he was soft on radical Islamic terrorism. Then, in the second debate, the question came up again, a day after the Paris massacres. Do you still believe that? the moderator asked in gotcha mode. Absolutely, replied Sanders, who then proceeded to give an accurate account of how record drought will lead to international instability. Had he won, it's possible that Bernie could have combined his focus on jobs and climate and infrastructure into some kind of overarching effort that really mattered. He was, after all, the presidential candidate most comfortable with big government since Roosevelt. Donald Trump, of course, will dodge this war just as he did Vietnam. He thinks, if that's actually the right verb that climate change is a hoax manufactured by the Chinese, who apparently, in their oriental saliness, convinced the polar ice caps to go along with their conspiracy. In fact, one of the lowest points in my years of fighting climate change came in late June, when I sat on the commission appointed to draft the Democratic Party platform. I was a Sanders appointee, alongside Cornel West and other luminaries. At 11pm on a Friday night, in a mostly deserted hotel ballroom in St Louis, I was given an hour to offer nine amendments to the platform to address climate change. More bike paths passed by unanimous consent. But all the semi-hard things that might begin to make a real difference, a fracking ban, a carbon tax, a prohibition against drilling or mining fossil fuels on public lands, a climate litmus litmus test for new developments, an end to World Bank financing of fossil fuel plants, all these were defeated with the Clinton appointees voting as a bloc. They were quite concerned about climate change, they insisted, but a phased-down approach would be best. There was the faintest whiff of Munich about it. Like Chamberlain, these were all good and concerned people, just the sort of steady, even-handed folks you'd like to have leading your nation in normal times. But they misunderstood the nature of the enemy. 
like fascism, climate change is one of those rare crises that get stronger if you don't attack. In every war, there are very real tipping points past which victory or even a draw will become impossible. And when the enemy manages to decimate some of the planet's oldest and most essential physical features, a polar ice cap, say, or the Pacific's coral reefs, that's a pretty good sign that a tipping point is near. In this war that we're in, the war that physics is fighting hard and that we aren't, winning slowly is exactly the same as losing. surprise, things changed a couple of weeks later when the final deliberations over the Democratic platform were held in Orlando. While Clinton's negotiators still wouldn't support a ban on fracking or a carbon tax, they did agree that we needed to price carbon, that wind and sun should be given priority over natural gas, and that any federal policy that worsened global warming should be rejected. Maybe it was polls showing that Bernie voters, especially young ones, have been slow to sign on to the Clinton campaign. Maybe the hottest June in American history had opened some minds. But you could, if you squinted, create a hopeful scenario. Clinton, for instance, promised that America will install half a billion solar panels in the next four years. That's not so so far off the curve that Tom Solomon calculates we need to hit. And if we do it by building solar factories of our own, rather than importing cheap foreign-made panels, we'll be positioning America as the world's dominant power in clean energy, just as our mobilisation in World War II ensured our economic might for two generations. If we don't get there first, others will. Driven by anger over smog-choked cities, the Chinese have already begun installing renewable energy at a world-beating rate. It would be a grave mistake for the United States to wait for another nation to take the lead in combating the global climate emergency, the Democratic platform asserts. We are committed to a national mobilisation and to leading a global effort to mobilise nations to address this threat on a scale not seen since World War II. The next president doesn't have to wait for a climate equivalent of Pearl Harbour to galvanise Congress. Much of what we need to do can and must be accomplished immediately through the same use of executive action that Roosevelt relied on to lay the groundwork for a wider mobilisation. The president could immediately put a halt to drilling and mining on public lands and waters, which contain at least half of all the untapped carbon left in America. She could slow the build-out of the natural gas system simply by correcting the outmoded way the EPA calculates the warming effect of methane just as Obama reigned in coal-fired plants. She could tell her various commissioners to put a stop to the federal practice of rubber-stamping new fossil fuel projects, rejecting those that would significantly exacerbate global warming. She could instruct every federal agency to buy all their power from green sources and rely exclusively on plug-in cars, creating new markets overnight. She could set a price on carbon for her agencies to follow internally, even without the congressional action that probably won't be forthcoming. And just as Roosevelt brought in experts from the private sector to plan for the defence build-out, she could get the blueprints for a full-scale climate mobilisation in place, even as she rallies the political will to make them plausible. Without the same urgency and foresight displayed by Roosevelt, without immediate executive action, we will lose this war. Normally in wartime, defeatism is a great sin. Luckily, though, you can't give aid and comfort to carbon. It has no morale to boost. So we can be totally honest. We've waited so long to fight back in this war that total victory is impossible and total defeat can't be ruled out. 
While the Democrats were meeting in that depressing St Louis hotel room last June, I had my laptop open. Even as they voted down one measure after another to combat climate change, news kept coming in from the front lines. In Japan, 700,000 people told to evacuate their homes after record rainfall leads to severe flooding and landslides. The deluge continues for five days. At its peak, nearly six inches of rain are falling every hour. In California... Thousands of homes are threatened in a wildfire described by the local fire chief as one of the most devastating I've ever seen. Suburban tracts look like Dresden after the bombing. Planes and helicopters buzz overhead, dropping bright plumes of chemical retardants. If the flight of the Valkyries had been playing, it could have been a scene from Apocalypse Now. And in West Virginia... A one-in-a-thousand-year storm dropped historic rain across the mountains, triggering record floods that killed dozens. You can see people in the second-storey windows waiting to be evacuated, one local official reported. A particularly dramatic video, a kind of YouTube Guernica for our moment, showed a large house being consumed by flames as it was swept down a rampaging river until it crashed into a bridge. Everybody lost everything, one dazed resident said. We never thought it would be this bad. A state trooper was even more succinct. It looks like a war zone, he said, because it is. You have been listening to the Beyond Zero Emission show about mobilising in a war against climate change. Thanks to actor Robin Laurie for a dramatic reading of Bill McKibben's article and David Spratt for talking to us about mobilising in Australia. Vivian used some sound effects from Freesound and would like to thank these sound artists, Guitar Guy 1985, Hello Flowers and Cheesehead Burger, who stuck his microphone out into a lightning flash and risked his head. Behind the scenes, thanks to Roger, Jody, and Teddy. Check out the podcast for this show tomorrow at Beyond Zero Emissions and pass it on to your friends. If you think we are talking sense, tune in again at 5pm next Monday. Now stay tuned for Save Albert Park. I'm Andy. You've been listening to Beyond Zero Emissions. I wrote the first book about climate change way back in 1989 when I was a young man in my 20s. Now I'm in my 50s. So I've spent my life watching our political system try to cope with the biggest challenge humans have ever faced. So far, they've failed. I used to think that was about some failure of human psychology or our love of the status quo or something like that, but I've changed my mind. I think most people faced with the spreading plague of drought and flood and failed harvest are ready to take action. The problem is the fossil fuel industry. It's the most profitable enterprise in the history of the Earth. Exxon makes more money each year than any company in the history of money. And much of that profit is based on a simple fact. Alone among industries, it doesn't have to clean up after itself. We let coal and gas and oil barons use the atmosphere as an open sewer into which to dump carbon, their main waste product, for free. That's a sweetheart deal. Imagine you own a restaurant and the city let you shovel your waste into the center of the street each night instead of paying for it to be carted away. You'd make more profit too. But soon the streets would be overrun with toxins and trash. Well, that's what's going on in our atmosphere right now. Every sensible economist has said that we should force the fossil fuel industry to pay for the damage carbon creates. But it hasn't happened because this industry of polluters is able to pervert our democracy with endless campaign contributions and lobbying money. I mean, our politicians should be forced to wear decals on their suits like NASCAR drivers. And here's the thing. 
we're not the radicals. We want a world a little bit like the one we were born into. Oil companies are the radical ones. They're willing to alter the chemical composition of the atmosphere in order to make more money. They've already run the carbon level in the atmosphere well past the safe line, 350 parts per million. Now they're trying for a world that, uh, well, it'll jeopardize the future of most living things. Does that seem right to you? So this is our challenge for the years ahead. If we can break their power, then the planet has a future. I don't know that we can. They are the ones with all the money. So we need to find other currencies, like passion, spirit, creativity. Sometimes we're going to have to put our bodies on the line and get arrested. It's the fight of our time, maybe the fight of all time, and we should all be honored to be a small part of it. Help ensure that our planet is protected for all future generations. Go to 350.org and join the fight today.